Thank you, Dennis. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thrilled to be able to have your word in our hands and to look at it, to read it, to know you better. God, I pray that we'd not take that for granted. We come around your word this morning in a passage that may or may not be familiar to it. May we just lock in like it's the first time we've heard it. Be excited about what is there and allow it to really go deep inside of us and change us so that, God, we leave here this morning not the same as when we came in. May you change us. May you do that work in us. May we not resist that. Keep us soft and tender for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Might have told you this before, but three men are discussing what it is they would like to hear others say about them when they die. And they ask each other, when you are in your casket and your friends and family are mourning over you, what would you like to hear them say? And the first guy jumps in and he says, I'd like to hear them say that I was a wonderful husband, a fine spiritual leader, and a great family man. The second guy says, you know, I would like to hear them say that I was an excellent teacher and a, and a true servant of God's. And the third guy says, I would like to hear them say, look, he's moving. <laughs> now, if today were your final day, what would you like others to say about you? Because that last one's not an option. What do you want to be remembered for? I mean, we don't like to talk about it, but any day could be the day we die. And on this first day of April, there's no fooling in that statement. So our next mark on this path to vibrancy is this. I want to give it to you up front. Live each day as if it, as if it is your last. Live each day as if it is your last. We're working our way through the book of Acts, identifying the markers on the path toward vibrancy. We encounter another first in our study in the book of Acts, the first recorded martyr. And beginning in chapter 6, through the entire 60 verses of chapter 7, we see the man Stephen. In a total of 71 verses, we get an up-close look at how he lived what he said, and how he died. And what most stands out to us in what we typically remember of Stephen is how he died. Isn't that often the case? People are remembered for how they finish. As we close in on death, it reveals who we really are. For Stephen, it revealed a spiritual beauty. And George Seaton's 1956 film, The Proud and the Profane, the steps of a young nurse are traced to Hiro Jima, where her husband had been killed in World War II. And this woman goes to the cemetery where her husband is buried and turns to the caretaker, a shell-shocked soldier who has seen, who had seen her husband die. Well, I want to know, she asked, how did he die? Like an amateur, he replied. The Marines teach you how to hurl a grenade and they teach you how to fire a mortar, but nobody teaches you how to die. There are no professionals in dying. I beg to differ. 
Stephen is a professional in dying. If there is such a list, he's on that list. He wasn't just a starter, he was a finisher. Are you a finisher? Am I? One of my personal issues with jogging is that I can't seem to pace myself very well. You know, I just jog my memory now and I get tired, but that's another matter. But see, what I do when I'm jogging is I tend to run too fast at the start of it so that I run out of steam towards the end. And I don't finish well when it comes to running. Actually, that's my problem with all of my exercise programs. I start with a bang, but then fizzle out to a pathetic finish. I know it doesn't describe any of you. I stand alone here. An amen would have been nice there, I think, but anyway... Yet to describe my overall life, if I could choose my epitaph, the one thing I want to be remembered for, what I want others to say about me is this, Brian Green is a man who finished strong. What would you like to hear them say? Stephen is an example of a man who finished well, faithful to the end. We're introduced to Stephen in Acts chapter 6, the the passage we looked at last Sunday. And I want to refresh our memories for a moment of what we have seen so far in the early church. I want us to get the bigger context. The early church was vibrant, it was alive, it was radiant, it was effective. And they were effective because they had shared their lives with each other. They, they enjoyed God's empowering presence. They had Christ-exalted ministry. And and they had a powerful, united testimony. The word on the street was, if you go there to play church, you might die there. For God's dead serious about hypocrisy. It wasn't a church without problems, as we have seen. They had murmuring. They had conflict to work through, which they did in a timely, healthy fashion. They were marked by the presence of of a reconciling spirit. It was in the midst of that conflict, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 6, that we first hear about this man, Stephen. And by the world's standards, he would hardly be noticed. But by God's yardstick, he was a great man. He did more than enter the race and get off to a good start. He finished with gusto. He was a finisher. So I want to look at what are some qualities of a finisher. What are some qualities of a finisher? Let's uncover a few of them as seen in Stephen's life. First of all, a finisher is one whose life is dominated by trusting and yielding. A finisher, first of all, the first quality of a finisher is one whose life is dominated by trusting and yielding. Stephen was chose, you remember, to serve in this ministry of food distribution, the caring of the widows. Why was he chosen? Well, look with me at chapter 6 prior to the passage that was just read this morning and go back to verse 3. We looked at it last week, Acts 6, verse 3. It tells us, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then if your eyes drop down to verse 5, it says that Stephen was chosen because he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now I want you to see the bigger picture for a moment. This church experienced incredible growth. 
the number of people is up to 20,000 people, and that's a conservative number. It's likely more around 30,000 people or more. And in that number of people, he, Stephen stands out with six other men as a guy who's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Steve, Stephen is one in 30,000. That's impressive. He was chosen because of his character and by those who knew him best. What will they say as they pass by his casket? There was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And it mentions in verse 8, the first verse that was read this morning, that Stephen was full of God's grace and power. One who's full of faith, I want you to see the connection, one who's full of faith and one who's full of the Holy Spirit is one who is full of grace and one who is full of power. That's the result of those first two. You show me a person who's full of grace and power and I'll show you a person who's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now to be full has the meaning of being filled up. And when Scripture speaks of filling... It has to do with domination or control. For example, to be full of anger or to be full of rage or to be full of sorrow means that you are at that moment being controlled by that quality. What are you being controlled by? What controlled Stephen, first of all, was faith. What dominated his life was trust in God. And we see that in this powerful message in chapter 7. The message, the whole chapter 7, is on how God rules history. And, and Stephen's point really is, is if, if, if God is in control of history and you're a part of it, then like Stephen, we can live life wide open. We can hold on to life loosely. If it is true that God rules history, then really, what do we have to worry about? If it is true that God is in control, then I wonder, why does so much energy and effort go into our running our own life? Are you trying to run your own life? How's that working for you? <laughs> what area in your life needs to be controlled by trusting? Are you dominated by trusting? Faith. Stephen was a man full of faith. He was also a man dominated by yielding to the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit controlled his life. Go with me to the end of Stephen's life and what's said of him, chapter 7, verse 55. We're going to come back to this whole verse a little bit later, but I want us to see the first sentence there. We see beautiful bookends to Stephen's life. Chapter 7, verse 55, it says, But Stephen, full of what? The Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, this wasn't some sudden blast that he got at the end of his life. No, it was a pattern of life. And what I mean by that is Stephen didn't have to make any, any adjustments to his life to die. Some nearing death tried to get it all together in the last moment, not Stephen. It had been together for a long time. I mean, you don't die like Stephen uh, by, by, without first living in a certain way. You don't all of a sudden say, I'm going to die beautifully here. I haven't lived for the Lord, but here it goes. 
You don't finish well unless you have certain qualities in place. His life was marked by complete domination of trusting and yielding. That's the first quality of a finisher. Grab it. Second quality of a finisher. Second quality of a finisher is one who does not quit at the first sign of resistance. Second quality of a finisher is one who does not quit at the first sign of resistance. Verse 9 tells us, back at chapter 6, that there was opposition that several people got together to argue with Stephen. Listen, if you're on the side of truth, you will get resistance. If you aren't getting much resistance, then perhaps you're not standing on the side of truth. I love verse 10. Chapter 6, I love verse 10. But they could not, it says verse 10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. They couldn't handle Stephen. They lost the arguments. Now what do you do when you start losing the debates? When you're on the losing end of an argument, what do you then resort to? We all do it. Something, some, someone is showing us up in some disagreement and, and we're losing the fight and so then we go after his or her character. You can always tell when the other person really is winning the argument because either you get louder or you start some name calling. Right? Oh yeah? Well, well you're, just, you're just dumb. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because I have nothing else to say. You're winning here. I got to assault you. These opposers lose the argument, so they attack Stephen's character. And verse 11 reveals to us their tactic. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses, against God. We're going after his character now. We've lost this argument. Stephen, the one you oppose withstands it, and you can't get your own way. You might even go as far as slander. In this case, they hire false witnesses. Verses 12 through 14 let us in on the trouble these men were causing. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now it's true. That Jesus did destroy the temple. Jesus' death removed the whole basis of the sacrificial system. That's true. It is true that Jesus alone alone is the one and only sacrifice for sins. that, That he's the one and only high priest to God. That he is the exact representation of the fullness of the glory of God. This is all true. That's what Stephen's preaching. It's true. The witnesses, however, were putting a false spin on a true statement. The Mosaic system had changed. For Jesus, the reality that all shadows represented had come into the world to forgive sins once and for all. Stephen likely spoke of the fact the law of Moses couldn't save anyone. It's true. Stephen would argue that Jesus is God. It is true that what Stephen was saying, but it was their slant on it that characterized it as false. It's not true. That what Stephen was saying was against the holy place and against the law. The reality is not against the shadow. Or that it blasphemed the shadow. No, it's fulfilled the shadow. And that's what Stephen was willing to die for. Stephen wouldn't back down. 
Stephen doesn't water down the message. He would not quit at the first sign of resistance. And Stephen runs into a lot of reaction and all of it is negative. But notice verse 13. It says there that he would, this fellow never stopped speaking. He wouldn't stop speaking about it. He knew what his message would do, but he would not waver in the speaking of it. He never flinched. He had courage. He would not quit. That's the second quality of a finisher. You're going to get resistance. Don't quit. Third quality of a finisher is one who lives for that which is God-approved. A third quality of a finisher is one who lives for that which is God-approved. Look with me at verse 15. It says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Now, that's a good thing, by the way. (laughs) Guys, you might not think much of someone telling you you have the face of an angel. Most of you don't really have to worry about that anyway. No, sorry. (laughs) Me too. Seriously, what's going on here? This is beautiful, verse 15. Remember the scene in the life of Moses when he came down from the mountain with the glory of God? What was Moses carrying? The old covenant. God approved of the old covenant, and Moses' face shone the glory of God. It was radiant. Stephen, and speaking of the new covenant, that which we remembered around communion this morning, manifested the glory of God. The new covenant was God-approved. And I think the radiance on Stephen's face was God's way of saying, I approve, Stephen. I approve. I'm with you. That's what I think. And there's a sense in which we all ought to reflect the Lord's glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18, you can look at it later. 3.18, 2 Corinthians 3.18 speaks to our unveiled faces showing the Lord's glory as we're being transformed into Christ's likeness with ever-increasing glory. It ought to show in our faces, people. I have to ask myself, does my face show the radiance of the Lord? It was a Sunday morning as the pastor and his family of six were getting ready for church. Getting out the door was more hectic than usual. Breakfast didn't turn out right, and several arguments were going on among the children. Now, I know that none of that happens to you, but you know of some people it does. Well, the pastor, getting very frazzled, tried to regain his composure. And in the midst of all this commotion, his wife enters the kitchen and notices the uproar. It's out of control. Kids, settle down, she admonished. Your dad has only 45 minutes until he has to become a radiant Christian. (laughs) I like that. I know that feeling. It was way too close. Stephen had radiating from his face the glory of God. This isn't something you try to turn on and off. This isn't something you attempt to get worked up in 45 minutes or as you enter into the foyer of the church. When our life is marked with the assurance that we're pleasing him, that what we are doing is God-approved, then our faces ought to show it. It was said of French pietist Francois Fenelon that his communion with God was such that his face shined with divine radiance. 
A religious skeptic who was compelled to spend the night in an inn with Fenelon hurried away the next morning saying, if I spend another night with that man, I'll be a Christian in spite of myself. It was all over the place. It's been said the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness, their radiance. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they're somber and joyless and smug and complacent consecration, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. What's your face showing? I love the line by Charles Spurgeon who said to his students preparing for ministry, he said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. And when you speak of hell, then, well, your everyday face will do. It's not how it should be. Stephen's face lights up as he speaks of his Savior and Lord. These resistors to Stephen, however, in the truth, respond to the radiance in Stephen's message, believe it or not, with hardness of heart. Now, we don't have time to look at the content of Stephen's sermon in chapter 7, but the sermon's a masterpiece. What starts out is in this sermon is a little agitation, builds to more and more agitation, to, and it builds to fury and, and frenzy. And in the end of the message, these people here are full of rage, and, and Stephen is full of the Lord. Contrast. He was in complete control, and he was calm. And by the time Stephen is done, it is the crowd who's on trial and accused of blasphemy. Stephen turns all this around to say, I believe in God, you don't. And look what he says at the end of his message, chapter 7. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 51. Chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says, the end of his message here, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Oh, Stephen, why did you have to say that? I mean, he could learn some things about uh, how to win people and influence friends. If he cared. They went berserk when he said this, and the rocks came. He went on to speak the truth even though He knew very well it could cost him his life. He was bold. And boldness has to do with saying what must be said. Do you need a little more boldness right now somewhere in your life? We see quite the contrast between a spirit-filled dying man and the hate-filled crowd killing him. What a way to die. What a thing to be remembered for. Stephen was a finisher. Fourth quality of a finisher is one who keeps looking up to Jesus. Fourth quality of a finisher is one who keeps looking up to Jesus. Look with me back at that verse 55, chapter 7. It's where it is all at right here. When the going gets tough, this is what we are to do right here. If we're going to be a finisher, then it's an absolute must that what we see right here in a single verse. I mean, many things jump out to me at verse 55. But before I read verse 55, remember the scene. The people around Stephen are grinding their teeth. Picture road rage and you get the picture. They're furious. It's all directed at Stephen. I mean, it's really their spiritual blindness and their spiritual condition, but their fury is directed at Stephen. That's what's going on. And then 
What does verse 55 tell us? Verse 55 says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't want to read more into this than is here. But to me, Stephen looking up is significant. Where are you looking when you're in a bad situation? Or where are your eyes when you're facing something tough? Where do you look when circumstances around you seem bleak or you're on the receiving end of some accusation and criticism or you're being hit by the trials of life and they just won't quit? Where do you look? Are you taking one hit after another? Look up. Look up. Do you feel like you have a big bullseye on your chest? Look up. Are you getting picked on? Look up. Have you had it with how some matter is being handled? Look up. Sometimes we we run around looking down, hanging our heads, and we wonder why we don't get through the problem. That life seems so big. Christ who rode the donkey into Jerusalem as king ascended into heaven, and looking at him is the only place to look. And as Stephen looked up, verse 55 says, he saw the glory of God. Fifth quality of a finisher is one who has eternity in view. Is one who has eternity in view. Remember Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73? His feet were about to slip. His eyes were filled with envy. He was losing all perspective as he watched the wicked prosper, the godless get ahead in life, and evil seemed to be winning. And he was beside himself. God, just take my life. This is pathetic. What changes Asaph's cynicism? He gains a whole new perspective as he gets alone with his God. He goes into the sanctuary and he sees things from eternity's point of view. I see their final destination. Ah, I get it now. It is as the story goes of a seminary student while he was playing basketball in a public school gym. He noticed an elderly janitor off to the side and this janitor, elderly man, was reading his Bible. The seminary student went over. He figured he might teach him a few things. He went over to this old man. He asked him what he was reading. The janitor answered, I'm reading the book of Revelation. Surprised and ready to explain it to him, the seminary student asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Oh, yes, the man replied, I understand it. Well, what does it mean, the student asked. And quietly the old man replied, it means that Jesus is going to (laughs) win. Amen. That's all he needed to know. That's it. Wrongs will be made right, injustices will be corrected, things we don't understand, things that don't make sense, things that seem senseless, cruel, and unfair will be resolved by the one who judges justly. Can we trust and trust ourselves to him? Can we be full of faith and believe that the one who has triumphed over the grave has won and will win the rest of the battles we encounter? Got them all covered. When we have our eyes on eternity, when we live in light of forever, we are then able to finish strong because we know that while this pain is real, it is temporary. 
Because we know that while this injustice is cruel, it is in the hands of our just God. Because we know that while someone can take my physical life, he cannot touch my soul. Living in light of eternity means I move toward my final destination, that I am guaranteed God's presence and God's provision is with me along the way in this life as, until I move instantly from this one into the next. That was Stephen. He looked to the heavens. I'm not worried about this. This is all temporary. A tourist from America paid a visit to a godly monk in Europe. And the American was astonished to see that the monk's house was only a simple room filled with a few books, one table, and a bench. That's it. He had nothing else. Monk asked the tourist, where's all your furniture? Where's yours, countered the monk. Mine, asked the puzzled American, I'm just a visitor here. I'm only passing through. So am I, replied the monk. So am I. Finishers live with a constant awareness that the world is not our home. We're only passing through. Why do we hold on so tightly? Stephen lived Christ-like. He died Christ-like. He's able to say as those are throwing stones at him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Dying words reveal a lot about a person. He had dying grace. Now, some may look at Stephen's martyrdom as a shame that his life was cut so short. Some might even argue that if Stephen hadn't been so outspoken and offensive, he might have lived life longer and had even a greater effect on lives. I mean, think of how many people he could have discipled and and how many he could have taught the Word. I mean, the sermon he preaches in chapter 7 is quite the sermon. I mean, it's potent, it's biblical, it's God-exalting. If he could have just worked on his delivery a little, things might have been a little different. I mean, as a preacher, you can't be going around saying, you killed Jesus, and expect people are going to take kindly to it. Calling people stiff-necked with uncircumcised hearts is going to affect your longevity in the pulpit, Stephen. Saying you always resist the Holy Spirit, you know, that's something that should be kept on your inside voice, not on your outside. That is if you want to continue to preach, Stephen. Mark this down. The effect of a person's life has very little to do with the length of it. The effect of a person's life has very little to do with the length of it. The Christian life is all about laying down our life for Christ every single day. It's living each day as if it might be our last. Mark of vibrancy, live each day as if it's our last. And Jesus, we see here, standing. Usual usual position of Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. What's he doing up? Now, we can only make educated guesses here. Someone spoke of Jesus was standing because he was welcoming his saints home. And he's standing with open arms, say, welcome home. Might he be standing ready to greet this faithful servant, Stephen? Or as Pastor Chris likes to picture it, Jesus is standing because he's applauding, cheering Stephen in. Perhaps. Finishers, that's what awaits us. Jesus standing to welcome us home, perhaps even applauding us as we enter. Maybe. The 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico, the marathon was the final event on the program. The Olympic Stadium was packed. There was excitement as the first athlete, an Ethiopian runner, entered the stadium. And the crowd erupted as he crossed the finish line. 
Well, way back in the field was another runner, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. He'd been eclipsed by the other runners. After 30 kilometers, his head was throbbing, his muscles were aching, and he fell to the ground. He had serious leg injuries, and officials wanted him to retire, but he refused. With his knee bandaged, Aquari picked himself up, and he hobbled the remaining 12 kilometers to the finish line. An hour after the winner had finished, Aquari entered the stadium. All but a few thousand of the crowd had gone home. Aquari moved around the track at a painstakingly slow pace until he finally collapsed over the finish line. It was one of the most heroic efforts in Olympic history. Afterward, asked by a reporter why he had not dropped out, Aquari said this. He said, my country did not send me to start the race. They sent me to finish. Believer, Christ did not save you to start the race, but to finish, and to finish strong. Be a finisher. Live each day as if it is our last. For the one who matters the most will be at that finish line, greeting us with open arms, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And might we even see Jesus applauding. Let's pray. Lord, what a remarkable man. But he was a human. He had weaknesses like we do. He wasn't perfect. A good example. Because if we sit here and say, well, I can't really relate to Christ, we can relate to, to Stephen who imitated Christ. We too ought to imitate Stephen as he imitates Christ. And so help us, Lord, to be a finisher, not just a starter, a finisher. And we can do it by your grace and your power that we finish strong, living each day as if it's our last for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.